Hey everybody, I'm Julia Marie, your experienced guide to the other side, and this is Evolving Humans, the place for spirited conversations for awakening souls. Take a break from your busy schedule and listen to this. Betty is author of the award-winning book Merchants of Light. She touched on the concept of a valve that humans are equipped with that serves a dual purpose. It reduces our natural connection to the universal consciousness so that we can function effectively in our everyday life. We don't need expanded consciousness to drive a car, cook dinner, cross the street, or pay the bills. So this valve is helpful at moments like the ones I just listed. Betty theorizes that this valve is stuck closed, that we've forgotten it has an open position. It is our task as a species to remember how to release this valve in order to reestablish our link with cosmic consciousness. She shared some examples of how we can open this valve. We closed out the first part of our conversation with a discussion of the return of the Divine Feminine. We open this episode with a discussion about mystical experiences and how necessary they are for our survival as a species. Welcome to Evolving Humans. I'm your host, Julia Marie, and this podcast is for visionary people like you who are exploring the true nature of reality and want to contribute to the global awakening. You seek to deepen the connection to your multidimensional self so that you can live a more conscious life. What those mystical experiences are necessary for our survival. Without them, it's just my own personal opinion, I don't know that we will survive unless more people are opened up to that possibility, that we are more than just our physical existence. Oh, Lord. Yes. Yes. And that's an amazing point. And here we have lived for these thousands of years, not knowing Mm -hmm. that we have this vast potential. Mm -hmm. And then we look at Indian. I always think, well, here are these people, but we don't have to believe it. And we see them, you know, hear of levitation. Oh, that's nonsense. We're like David Lewis Williams. We have been for so long. It's it's nonsense. They believe it, but it's nonsense. I mean, India could develop samadhi. They knew how to do that. And we did too in the West. The pre-Socratic philosophers, and Peter Kingsley's done incredible work uh, about them. They were shamans. They were mystics. They were healers. They were scientists. They were diplomats. And they knew how to achieve samadhi. That was cut off in the West. And so much so that it was nonsense to the West and that we are just what we are. We're nothing but matter. And so it became important that you develop the left brain. You become smart. People would think, oh, you're so intelligent and you achieve things or you make money or you have, you know, this, we had to snatch and grab in the material world to give ourselves some meaning that somehow intuitively we knew we had, but it wasn't that. And it wasn't just the smartness of the (laughs) left brain. It was the other that we have this vast, mind that has many components and that the right brain develops before the left. It feeds the left. The left can take it out of context. It can analyze it. It's brilliant, Mm -hmm. but it's incorrect if it doesn't return it to the right brain and the original context. 
And that was cut off. I mean, the French philosophers, they said, we've achieved the apex. We are the brightest people in the world. And the left brain is all there is. Everything else that came before is nonsense. And we don't need it. And so we created a culture that was just left brain, severed itself from its source, from feeling. And the Egyptians knew. They said so clearly, if we do not develop feeling, civilization cannot unfold. We have to go by heart consciousness. And all of the the wisdom traditions show that mm-hmm. it's the heart-centered consciousness. How many pictures are there of Jesus with this radiant heart that he's connected to the heart? But to do that, the left brain must be connected to the right and to the heart. And that connects us to the cosmos, to the heart of the universe. It's just something that was lost and destroyed willfully by many who wanted power in Western culture. And today, it has, I think, the darkness that we see today is a result of that kind of censorship and suppression and not knowing. Because what do they want to do? We need to transhumanize them, blend them with the machine so that they will be smarter and have all nothing about the other. And if we don't really recognize who we are and and move forward in opening up ourselves to that vastness, then we won't be able to again because we won't be human any longer. Mm-hmm. We will be merged with the machine. I mean, it's fine to have things from the machine that help us, but when they destroy that humanity, who we are as a species, that potential for vastness, which these people know nothing about, they think that they, through the machine they can make us better. But we already have that that vast intelligence. And when you experience those things in a mystical state, you know them, you know them in a way that you could never learn them uh, through the left brain. You know, so it's, uh, but they don't know any of that. For them, it's just that left brain consciousness. And that's why they say science is, you know, that's the highest developed consciousness you can have. No, it isn't if it has severed itself from the right brain and feeling. And it has, and that's why we have a culture that creates weapons and ways to destroy ourselves and foods and chemicals in the soil and the environment, the air. They're doing terribly dangerous things Mm -hmm. with sloppy science, you might say, because they don't know who the human being is. So we have to achieve that awareness of our potential so that we can help them to heal, I would say. Well, before I go to my next question, you you used a word earlier that some people might not know what it means, samadhi. Would you mind explaining that? That is what we've been talking about, mm-hmm. that experience of who we are, that vastness of who we are. And and I love how you say that, is that, that we have to experience that. I mean, mm-hmm. imagine a species having this vast potential and not knowing anything about it. You know, it's through suppression, repression, censorship. And that is the key word in Western civilization is suppression of who we are. And there, there are many who are overcoming that and I and who are realizing it. And of course, it changes everything. <laughs> so mm-hmm. and I think many people, you know, so much is happening, like your program, other programs, people are saying things I never heard when I was in high school or college. Well, one of the hopes I have is that this little podcast can plant some seeds that hopefully will open others up to the possibility because 
The one thing about having a mystical experience is I could spend hours describing a mystical experience I've had, but unless you've had it yourself, you can't truly understand the magnitude of what that is. (laughs) It's true. And it doesn't even have to last very long, and you don't even have to have more than one. One truly mystical experience connecting directly your human consciousness with the divine can change your life. Yeah, it's true. And yet people try to explain it like the people who've had near-death, actual death experiences. It's just so phenomenal. And they try to explain it, but they realize they can't. Mm-hmm. But I have to say that this is an, another good way, though, to help us to open up to it. Because as I said, I did pay attention to my dreams, but I did read. And I tried to find people who maybe knew something. Well, it wasn't hard to find people who knew something I didn't know. And so I just kept reading and reading. And I was uh, so the first one, and I used to always talk about that in my myth class, Maurice, Richard Maurice Buck, B-U-C-K-E, was Canadian, but he was uh, Walt Whitman's doctor. And he was just a very interesting person. And he tells the story, and I have it in the book, that he spent an evening with friends. It was in the late 1800s. Yeah, late 1800s. He spent the evening with friends, and they were talking about Wordsworth and Keats and Shelley and various poets, they reading poetry, talking about it. So they kind of had opened their mind in that way. And that's a way, too, when you focus on these things. He got in the carriage to go home, and he thought, oh, no, the city in front of him was on fire. And then he realized, oh, no, that light was in him. And he had just spontaneously a mystical experience in which he tried to explain it too, but he called it cosmic consciousness. He said he knew who he was. He knew that we are all a part of this cosmic consciousness and that there is no death, that we are immortal. And that's what our ancestor mystics always taught us. We are immortal, divine, and creative. Mm-hmm. And he said, I have no idea how long that lasts. Did maybe it was just a few seconds or a few minutes, but it changed my life forever, just as you're saying. Mm-hmm. It changed him forever. And then he did a book. He he went back into history looking for anyone who might have had such an experience. And so he wrote about that in Cosmic Consciousness. Burke, it's a buck, buck, it is, B-U-C-K-E. Uh it just that influenced me. So I was always trying, although no, I couldn't understand, but I thought. But it's possible. And when I was teaching mythology, you know, there were the various stages of mythological growth and mm-hmm. the youth and into ego and then and then that third stage of opening to this vastness who we are. And I would always say to my students at that time, I said, I have not experienced this, but I believe that it is possible because so many people have, and our mythology is expressing that potential. That belief opened me to the potential, and that helped me. Well, I feel like as a as a collective, that's where humanity is right now. We're at that stage where we can collectively open to that potential, mm-hmm. which is why we're probably seeing more discussions like this one out there in the world. I think so. And near-death experiences, mm-hmm. uh, years ago, decades ago, there were already many million just in this country. Now, there are millions all over the world that have been uh, experienced and reported. 
and we're learning so much. And that certainly can open people to the potential incredibly. So I think reading those things, knowing those things, being open to those things. And I love, for instance, um, Anita Morjani, who had the ex- a near-death experience when she had, I believe it was fourth stage cancer. Mm-hmm. And she, when she came back, she was healed. She was told she would be, and she was. But one thing I thought was beautiful that she said in all of this experience of her fastness, she said, I realized God is not a being, but a state of being mm-hmm. that is possible for all of us. That's so we're learning a lot from them. One of the other things that you talked about in this section on shamanism that interested me was your encounter with the praying mantis while you were writing about the praying mantis. And for me, (laughs) that story illustrates how the two worlds actually are so entwined. There is no separation. Would you share that story, please? It's one of my favorites. I love that. And I was that my experience was preceded by uh, many people who had heard Lawrence Vanderpost talk about uh, the mantis in San Bushmen culture. I mean, that's the most the, the smallest creature practically. They didn't choose, he said, a grand uh, animal, you know, the very sophisticated animal that is available. This little tiny uh, smallest. But they wanted to say that in the mo- in the smallest thing is the divine. Mm-hmm. But here is the mantis then. And when he talked about it, people would have experiences And when he, with the mantis. When he came to America to talk about the mantis, when he knocked on the door of a woman who was sponsoring his talks, it was a mantis on the door handle. So my experience was that I was reading Lawrence Vanderpost's works of the Sandbushman and of their experiences and of their deep, deep relationship to soul and to the mantis as a powerful divine symbol. And they said, of course, to lose soul is the worst thing that could happen to anyone. But mantis was one of the wonderful creatures, divine images. And and it is beginning to awaken in us because what Vanderpost was saying is that we have like all of these archetypal experiences mm-hmm. individually from our ancestors, but they're in us. Like the woman who's very sophisticated therapist, she started dreaming of the mantis. She didn't even know what it was. And he, Vanderpost said that those archetypes are the human creation out of those archetypes are within us all. So anyway, I was writing about the sand and I just, I was so moved by them. And so Kim, uh, my friend Kim, who's the director of the Comlock Center, we were having breakfast out on the patio. And Kim said to me, oh, look at that huge grasshopper on the chair by you. And I looked at it and I said, that's not a grasshopper. And she said, I guess you're going to tell me it's a a mantis. I said, it is. I had never seen a mantis except a picture of it. And I said, oh, it is. And that mantis, it stayed right there for a good while. Then I had a jasmine bush, tall jasmine bush, right outside my study window. And the mantis went there. And she stayed there for a long time. And then a male uh, came along and they mated. And then she there was a little cocoon of what would be many little 
mantis creatures. And she disappeared, but that little cocoon stayed on the jasmine bush. And later, I saw one little teeny one. So when they, when it had, when it gave, the cocoon gave birth, it was, it stayed there. She stayed there the entire length of time that I worked on the sandbushman. I just talk about a synchronicity. It was so beautiful. I felt so close to mantis and the sand people, you know, with that. Uh, that's where, as you said so beautifully, these two worlds meet. This inner spiritual, invisible world is right here all the time with us. Mm -hmm. And very often then we'll see an image of it like that, that synchronicity tells us. That's where these two worlds come together. You feel that unity, you know. And not only that, before that happened, Kim had not been well. And so my friend came and brought her a beautiful, colorful card with a mantis on it. And Kim brought it in and said, I think this belongs on your desk. And then later we had the mantis, the real mantis. It was so interesting because I thought, oh, that's beautiful because here in my uh, limitations, the mantis could appear on a card, but it couldn't possibly appear in my world. I'd never seen one here. So there I had it on the card. And then the mantis showed me, oh, yes, we can. You know, don't limit creativity. And there it was. Yeah, I wanted you to share that story because right around the time that I was getting to that part in your book, I was going through my dream journal looking for something in particular. And I realized I had a dream about a praying mantis. Like it was in my dream journal. Oh. And then a few pages later in your book, I'm reading about you having this encounter with the... So that's why I wanted you to share it. I'm going, oh, that's so synchronistic. <laughs> oh, that yeah. really is, yeah. yeah. That's that's the enchantment of life. Mm -hmm. You know, that's living in an enchanted world. And I think our ancestors wanted to create culture in a way that we would be attuned to observing and experiencing that. Mm -hmm. So that the land is enchanted. You know, when, when we feel that connectedness, then it is like being in a magical world. Well, and somewhere underneath everything that we're experiencing today, the magic lives and waits. Yes. And waits. Yep. That's right. Yes. Betty, we've covered 200,000 years of shamanism <laughs> today, but... Before we end things, is there anything you would like to say, something they can ponder as they go about their day? Yes, I think that what I realized in, in my life and in the research is that what the shamans were about is still with us, obviously. We still have that potential. We just have to awaken to it, click into it. But they that whole recognition helped to develop enchanted cultures, shaman, mystic, and scientific cultures that we do nothing about. This is our source of reality and beginnings in the West. We lost that. But I think it's very important for us to know this is not some new age, just idea or mm -hmm. whatever. This is the depth of the source of who we are. And it created shaman, mystic, civilizations, then those civilizations or cultures were destroyed in several ways, sometimes just the vicissitudes of time, but they were specifically targeted by the Deuteronomists and the Roman Church, the Habsburgs, anyone who wanted power over us, 
they knew to wipe that out. I don't want to focus so much on the wiping out as I want to focus on the fact that we have those roots in us that are shaman, mystical, and scientific connected with the soul, the science of the soul and the outer world. That is who we are in our roots. I I think that is so important for us to know that, and we'll talk about this later, is that Mm -hmm. this went underground, but in various forms of Kabbalah, mystic Christianity, alchemies, and so forth. And it then sprang up four times in European culture, and now the fifth time here. It, It never left us. It has been with us as that deep principle of sacred life and the vastness of who we are. And we'll talk about the five waves of our remembering this, is that we are, we are rooted in a powerful shaman mystic tradition. And that's what the West is trying to discover and realize and become aware of today. So I'm very hopeful. I am too. And most of my hope came from reading your book, frankly, (laughs) because I didn't really have a whole lot of positive thoughts about our collective outcome. So I will say that for somebody who's spent most of her life following as best I can, your book was a a beautiful ray of hope. Maybe we can, you know. When the pandemic began, uh, I had finished my book. I just returned from London where we launched it. And then I started doing research on what was behind the pandemic and the Great Reset and the technocracy and their plans that have been going on for a very long time, which would be a new set of Deuteronomists in the extreme, much, much worse and much more ill, I would say. Well, I tell you, for two years, just taking that in, because I was reading all of the censored scientists and mystics and independent journalists and clinicians working with patients. And all of that's been censored. Science doesn't exist when there's censorship. It Mm -hmm. becomes scientism, but it's not science. And that's what's in control of the agencies and government now is that kind of thinking. But here are all these other scientists out here. I mean, some of Nobel, uh, the Nobel Prize for Science. I mean, these people are brilliant, but they're, they're, they have been taken off of every. I got pretty down. The darkness came in on me and I thought, how can we ever? <laughs> this illness in our soul and our species, these people are part of who we are. We're all one. And that they would, their creativity would be so destructive. Mm-hmm. And, but then I remembered and I tried to get myself to go back into wait a minute, perhaps we can only see this well now because there is more light. Mm-hmm. And then I had had an experience that was, I probably talked about it before, one of the most profound in my life of this disc of light during a ritual with two other women for children. Coming, it was the most real thing. Talk about realer than real. And the woman spiraled out of the bottom of that sphere of light. I knew it was, they were all in there or all one cosmic consciousness, too vast for me to hold. But she came into me and I could experience her, but it was very powerful. And I was exhausted after the experience. She sang through me and she said, sang, we are here. Can you feel us? It's 
So the deep knowing is the feeling it. You know it through feeling. Mm -hmm. We are here. You have called us, and we are here. Your planet has called us, and we are here. We are the light that circles round your planet. And I knew more than what she's saying. I knew that that light had been there for a long time. And I knew now that we are so longing for a different world and not to go the way of this darkness that we had called this light from the cosmos and it was here. And then she said, we are ready to connect to your planet. Now that sounds like science fiction, but that's exactly what happened. And it was like a demonstration or ritual for me to know that we had reached the point that through each of us, who each one is longing for this deep connection to the light, we are anchoring it in the planet. And I realized, of course, we'll make it. We will make it because we have called, and in one place, a jackal healers, those who eat the darkness and transform it within themselves within their own souls. Mm -hmm. So we take this in, the darkness, and know it for what, I think it's very, very important that we know what's going on. We know this darkness. We take it in, and it almost kills us. It poisons us to death, mm -hmm. practically. But then we have to be the jackal and transform it out of our own soul and the light that we have called to our planet and is in us, anchored in us, and in the planet. And I think that is what gives me hope that we, I feel, yes, we will. There are so many people from the cosmos and here helping us. And the merchants of light actually means that ML, that it's an energy field. That is that light energy field that is a higher frequency now so that we can do this work together, together. Thank you for the reminder. So we've come to the end of our time for this episode, but before we close, I want to let people know how they can find you. For information and to connect with Betty Kovach, please go to her website, www.kamlak.com. That's kamlak.com. Her books are available on Amazon, at major booksellers, or through her website. Betty, I'm deeply grateful to you for once again sharing your wisdom with the Evolving Humans audience and with me, frankly. Well, I'm happy to be here. Whatever whatever we can do, you know, you and I are trying. I appreciate you. Well, that's our show for today. If you have any questions or comments, please go to our website, evolvinghumanspodcast.com, and leave me a voicemail by clicking on the purple microphone in the lower right-hand corner of the homepage. And stay tuned for my next conversation with Betty Kovach, where we'll be talking about the five ways of remembering.